Uh, today, we continue our sermon series in the book of Jesus, what it really means to follow him. And let me begin by saying this. I once heard a pastor saying this statement, and I found this statement that I'm about to say true over and over again, both in my personal life, also as a minister of God, God's word and all that. He said, new believers are the best New believers are the often best evangelizers. And I'm like, hmm, what does that mean? And he elaborated by saying often, new believers, even more than the seasoned believers, tended to be the best and most evangelizers because, first, because they tended to have so much zeal, the genuine convert, when your life had been changed by the grace of the Lord and the gospel, there's so much passion and joy for the newness of heart that you cannot help but to share. It's like bubbling joy. I have found a new meaning of life. So they share much more frequently and op- op- openly without any shame. Another reason, he said, the new believers tended to be the best evangelizer uh, is because sheer proximity, meaning because they just became believers, so they tended to have much more non-believing friends around them more opportunity to share the gospel. Flip side of coin, sadly, uh, many of us who might have been walking with the Lord for a long time, uh, to the degree that you have been around the church block more often, your life gets narrower just with believers for good and bad, that you have lesser opportunity somehow to become like that. This made sense to me, but the one reason that really threw me off in a way that made me really examine myself is that another important and yet really sad reason why new believers tended to be far better evangelizer uh, than the seasoned believers is that those people who've been Christian for a long time tended to add a lot of Christian snobbery, religiosity, or legalism in a way that they serve and believe the Lord that becomes very unattractive to the non-believing world. It's good to be set apart for the Lord and be holy like God, but it is very obnoxious to be Christian snobbery, as in like, I am so much better than you because I am this or that. And the people in the world, there's no winsomeness of Christ in you as a result of that. Now, today, in our passage, I want to talk about some of that, whether you want to call it religiosity, Christian snobbery, all the things that you add to your own life, thinking you're so much better Christian because you do and that, or legalism. Uh, We will see some of that in our text that we are about to jump in. Here's one danger to avoid. Yes, as you go along, you will come to think of a person or two. Oh, man, he really needs to hear this. I'm going to share this message to him. He needs to hear it. Well, that's okay. If you want to do that, that's fine. And she needs to hear it. That's fine. We all have those friends that comes to our mind who's very judgmental and things like that. But as much as you think about that, as much as you would like to also share, think about this. Wait, is there any blind spot in me as well? I think this is of the Lord, but I'm actually inserting just my own righteousness my own dignity, thinking I am so much better because I come to a church, even on Sunday, that might rain later. I'm so much better because I give and et cetera, et cetera. 
What is that that you tend to add to your belief to make yourself feel so much better because you do certain things? Do I have so much religiosity in my life that in the end, do I plague the true message of the gospel, blur what the gospel of Jesus Christ is all about? Or is there a fervent joy and zeal for the purest form of gospel, what Christ has done for you when you had nothing to offer? I pray that God will do a little surgery of our heart, opening a blind spot so that we may know him more, so that we may join him in his mission of spreading the good news of Jesus Christ that is available to all. So now, in this lengthy passage that we read, chapter 2 all the way down to 3-6, because there are so much, it would be a great idea for you to kind of look along where I'm going with all that in the Bible. There will be three clear movements that you will find in this section. First, we will explore the clear mission of Jesus. What did Jesus Christ come on earth to do? We will talk about the elaborate that. And second, you will see in this passage that there's clear opposition to Jesus' mission. There's this religious sector group called the Pharisees who just block everything, who just does all the things to like tackle Jesus. Why are you doing this, Jesus? I'm not happy with it call it religiosity, their own righteousness. There is clear opposition to Jesus' mission, so we will explain that. And as we examine ourselves lastly, if you find any of your own tendency of religiosity and things like that, lastly, how do you realign yourselves to the message of the gospel, to the mission of Jesus, rather than plaguing the very message of gospel by your own religiosity and by your own righteousness? What, are those that, what does that really look like? So we'll talk about the mission of Jesus, the opposition to his mission, and how to realign ourselves to the mission of Jesus. So first, let's go, the mission of Jesus. The very first account we just read here, Jesus forgives and heals a paralyzed man. You remember verse chapter 2, 1 all the way to 12 that we read. This passage that we read is, what's the word for it? It's quite cinematic. What I mean by that is you can almost picture it, right? There's paralyzed men who can't even really walk. So these four friends helicopters him all the way to the roof, tears the roof down, and lowers him to Jesus. It's a showstopper. I mean, I'm like, whoa, what is happening? We hear it sometimes that we are numbed by it, but I mean, imagine something happens like that. Somebody tears the roof and brings the person down. That would be a showstopper. It's pretty epic scale. It's hard to top that, what's happening. Uh, but hey, we have Jesus. He does top that. What does Jesus say in verse 5? When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, this seems to me to be really out of context, at least the tone deaf. What I mean by that, if I were a paralyzed man, I'd be like, I'm like, yes, this is my hope. Maybe this guy can heal me. I heard that he's a great miracle worker. My last hope, my friends are luring me. There's finally Jesus, heal me. And then Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. I'd be like, um, excuse me, Jesus. I didn't come for a church service here. Duh, don't you look at me. I can't even walk. Who cares about my sins? Heal me. Heal me now. What are you doing? 
I mean, wouldn't that be your greatest hopes and aspiration at that moment? I would be. I would love to walk if I couldn't walk. I'd be like, Jesus, don't you see my immediate need? I am being Lord. Heal me. But what's amazing about what Jesus does is that he doesn't even explain. He just does it, says that your sins are forgiven. What Jesus is saying by not saying anything is that, see, you think your greatest needs are your suffering. You think your greatest needs are just being able to walk again. You think that's what you need the most in your life. But guess what? You have something far more urgent and important thing that you don't even realize. Your primary issue in your life is not suffering, but sin. That's my primary mission on this earth. I did not just come here to remove suffering, but my primary purpose and mission is to eradicate this ultimate pandemic called sin. See, it's Jesus' cruel God. Okay, okay, let me just take care of your sin. Let me go away. No. In verse 11 and 12, Jesus does heal a man eventually, but by Jesus saying, your greatest issue and primary uh, purpose in your life is not necessarily just removal of suffering, but sin. In Jesus' first coming, his primary mission was to take care of our sin problem. Yes, when our king comes back in glory once again in his second coming, he will take care of our suffering problem once for all. But please do not mix that order up. If you think of Jesus' first coming, his primary purpose is removal of suffering, then you will only treat him as your assistant. You'll never treat him as a king who came to abolish your sin problem. And if you think Jesus is just a suffering remover, then you will always use him, misuse him, and abuse him without realizing who Jesus really is. This is what I mean. Like when I was in high school, I came to America as a senior. You know, when you came to your land of nowhere in Colorado, can't even speak the language. Oh God, my life is so hard. My heart is sick. I need to be healed. If only I can speak the language. Years later, I'm fine. I could speak. Go to college. Oh God, life is still so hard, suffering. Uh, if only I figure out my future. Life is so uncertain after college. I figured out to go to grad school. Oh, now if only and that and that. I've always gone to Jesus for my suffering, for my desires, for my issues. And guess what? He has always healed me, but I am still sick. I am still like, God, can you please give me something else, something more? I'm always opting him just as my assistant, my Amazon wish list fulfiller, more than treating him as a king. See, when you aim Jesus as just a suffering remover, you'll get neither because you just use him and misuse him and abuse him. What Jesus wants is a surgery on your heart, far more than just fulfilling sufferings and removing sufferings in your body and in your life. So what does Jesus teach you first and foremost? Don't come to him just to meet your agenda, but come to him because he's God who has come to take away the sins of the world. Do you see him for who he is? Jesus says in verse 17, it is not for the healthy that I came, but for the sick. In verse 7, he says, not for the righteous that I came, but for the sinners. That is Jesus' primary mission. Even more than 
your all the issues in life, he has come to take care of our sin issues. That's what gospel is going to be all about. That's what his mission to go to cross for our sin. So first, we see that here. Now, second, and yet there's very clear opposition in this text that we read in chapter entire two and three, very clear opposition to Jesus' mission by this religious sector called Pharisee. They are not happy that Jesus goes about and do all kinds of radical things. Like we read in verse 1 through 12, Pharisees here are offended that Jesus is forgiving sins here. Uh, it offends religious establishment. Who does it have authority to forgive sins? And next passage we read 13 through 17. In this account, Jesus is hanging out with a tax collector. And Pharisees, the righteous one, the holy one, are offended that Jesus is hanging out with the lowest of low. Now, granted, you and I don't like tax collectors either. One commentator puts, these are the scumbag of all scumbags. That's a very harsh way to put it, but that much people hated him. Why is that? I mean, at the time, they were occupied by Romans, and these Jew tax collectors want Romans, actually. These tax collectors are Jewish people, but stealing all the money from their own kind to give the money back to a Roman. So when you're colonized and occupied like that, you can do whatever you want. So Roman used the tax collector to collect it, basically like war spoil. They would charge Jewish people as much as they want, take the tax, and the, this tax collector, Jewish tax collector, will take the middle cut and send all that back to Rome. So if you're a Jewish man, I'd be like, you are one of us and you're working for that, they are trained extortionists, in other words. Con artists to the dead, everyone hated him. To say the least, the Pharisees despised him because they are like, I'm the righteous one, the holy one. You greedy people. So Pharisees are really upset that Jesus is hanging out with this tax collector that everyone despised. 18 to 21, it only escalates. Everybody fasts. But Jesus' disciples doesn't. So they question why Jesus is breaking all kind of tradition. 23 to 27 and all the way down to 3, 1 through 6. It's about the Sabbath regulation. Tradition in Sabbath, you are to rest and not work. But Jesus' disciples take some fruit off the field. And also on Sabbath, Jesus heals a man. And Pharisees are like, what are you doing? You are not supposed to do that. So everything that Jesus does... This group of Pharisees are just really offended in all that he does. Now, we keep throwing this word out, Pharisees, but who are, who, who are them? We need to know about who they are because they play a pretty important role in the, not only in the book of Mark, but entire gospel narrative. You will see who the Pharisees are. They are, in a sense, the expert in the Torah, expert of the law. And you think because if you've been around church block, you heard their name quite a bit, there'll be a billion of them. Historian Josephus tells us that by the 8070, there are only about 6,000 of them approximately. But these were absolutely influential people responsible even for the crucifixion of a Jewish Messiah, Jesus. Um, New Testament author, in, in the New Testament account here like that, Pharisees are a group of people who not only obey the written law, but they would add things. They would also obey the tradition that's been passed down throughout the ancestor. Oral law and all the traditions, Pharisees elevated that to the degree that we must obey all the tradition, all this oral law that's been passed down. Otherwise, you are not good enough. And their name in itself means distinguished, set apart. 
So God calls us to be distinguished and set apart, right? Be holy, for I am holy. That means to be set apart. But when God tells us to be set apart, distinguished, he commands us to be set apart, holy in humility. But these people are set apart in pride. They are set apart, but because I go above and beyond the law, I am holier than thou. How did the English word pharisaical came about? It's not the friendly word, right? The one who puts up great act out of front, but in the behind, they are all prideful, really nasty. These are the Pharisees that we are talking about, that Jesus is constantly running into their opposition. They took pride in their distinguished, set-apart life. They took pride in their moral uprightness. Now, we think, oh yeah, that's just for Pharisees. I am not like that, Jen. Well, let's, let's take time to really think about that. What we are called, the reason why oftentimes new believers tend to be better evangelizer than you are, than I am often even, tended to be, because we added a bunch of this kind of religiosity, bunch of legalism in our demeanor, the way we go about. We are called to be the demonstrator of gospel truths, whom Jesus hangs out with the lowest low and tells them the good news of Jesus Christ. But rather than the demonstrator of gospel truth, we have often become the demonstrator of our religiosity. Or you want to call it fanaticism. I am so much better because of this and that and that. Now, some of them are really obnoxious enough to really go about life like that. And some of us are really subtle. It's about your heart attitude. Let me give you a couple diagnostic tools today for you to examine yourself whether you have any of this kind of tendency. First, if you, let me talk internally and externally, internally, Chelton. If you often think and care about what others are doing wrong so much than, ha- than to have reflection and examination of your own heart, if you just blame others for all the issues in the life, you see all the specks in their eyes, but you are ignorant of all the logs in your eyes. You have a very pharisaical tendency. Yes, the people that you see, oh yeah, that person, because of that world, it's so bad. Others see that as well. But what you don't see is yourself. You've got humongous issue within you too. You are so blinded to it. I had a friend in high school who lived right by the train rail. Every night at 12 and 2 a.m., he said, train went by. I was like, how is that? I was like, what? Train? Oh, yeah, I slipped through it. I'm like, what? You slipped through that loud train? I was like, yeah, he's so used to that. He's numbed by it. Oh, do you have any of things like that? You don't even see it. Ask your closest friend. They'll tell you, hey, but we don't even realize because we are so busy blaming others in our heart. I am so much better because oh, that's the issues of the world. Another way to know whether you have this bunch of pharisaical judgmental tendency is if you have any big swing of your heart between inflated ego and deflated ego. If you constantly see yourself, I am so much better, I am nobody. If your ego is, if you constantly swing back and forth between superiority complex and inferiority complex in your life, you might as well have this tendency. Why do I say that? In the end, Pharisees are the ones that are constantly having superiority complex and inferiority complex too. Superiority complex is to tell, right? Because they're constantly, hey, I don't even obey just the Torah. 
look at me. I'm even obeying all this tradition. I am so much better. So they constantly felt superior. But what do I mean by the inferiority complex? At the same time, they were very deflated ego because they are constantly taking themselves to the internal judgment court in their heart. Was I good enough today? Did I meet all the laws that God has set apart? Just like Romans tells us, God will not even judge through the gospel. For those who don't even know Jesus Christ, they cannot even keep all the law they set apart in their heart. Pharisees are constantly judging that, was I good enough today? Was I not good enough today? I can only make myself feel better by judging them because I'm not good enough. I did not even meet all the regulation that I set apart to be. So they will be the most arrogant and insecure people group in the world. Do you have that manifest in your life? That one day you feel like you're so much better because you do certain things that others don't. You feel like you're so much better. But on the other side, that shows your deep insecurity. You feel like you have to constantly prove your worthiness. So you're taking yourself to internal judgment court. But gospel has adjourned the court, children. There's freedom in the gospel. But often, ourselves, when you know when you have a pharisaical tendency, that you just swing back and forth all the time. Another way to know now, let me speak externally. This may be a little painful for some of you, but has anyone told you, hey, I feel really judged by you? Has more than one friend told you? Has the closest friend ever told you, hey, when I'm around you, I feel like I'm constantly being judged by you? Because you are judging yourself internally and you're trying to push others down by judging them as well. And it's deeply painful to be judged like that. And these Pharisees were known by that always, oh God, thank you that I am not like those others. I am so much better. That's their prayer was. This, whether you want to call it, you might feel better to judge others initially because you feel better, but in the end, that will only lead to self-absorption. It always makes it about you. I am so much better because I don't do that, that, and that. If you run this scenario down all day in your life, you will become the most self-absorbed, isolated person in the world. Because you think you are so much better. Others see that you are not. Well, you think you are. I think I am oftentimes. Now, I have been told that as well. Jen, I feel judged by you. Oh, how they crushed my heart. They made me realize that I'm an addict recovering from my pharisaical tendency. I have been following the Lord for quite a while, too. There are a bunch of things I added in my vocabulary, added in my conduct. The people sometimes around me feel like, Jen, I feel judged by you. Oh, God, forgive me for that. Do people around you feel condemned by you? It is no fun to be judged or to be a judge because that only leads you in the end to the most self-absorbed person. And on the other side, I've been a recipient as well. This is personal issue as well. I happened to go to Christian college. Um, I spent four years there. And after that, I wanted to go to grad school seminary. That was a little bit more different Christian tradition than my undergrad. A boy, when I applied to a little bit different tradition seminary, Boy, all of a sudden people are like, Jen, are you sure you're a Christian? Jen, are you sure about that? Being getting called up by all those authority, losing friends over that? Jen, that's not right. All this Christian legalism and not understanding any difference. I was so wounded by this whole ex- transition time between my last year of college and to my grad school 
that perhaps I'm just wrong. Maybe it is right. I am just, maybe I'm just don't know what I'm doing. Everything's terrible. Maybe they are right. I am not worthy. Maybe I'm just going really bad route. But when I got to my grad school, the first book that I took went to grad school seminary three days after my graduation. First book they assigned me to read in this class called Spiritual Life was a book called Grace Awakening by Chuck Swindoll. It deals a whole lot with Christian legalism. I read, I wept through the, that book in my dorm every night. I wept so much, the pages are wet. And those four years in my grad school, the sweet recovery time for all I've been through. And when I finished the book after two weeks, it was such an impactful book at the season of my life. Uh, that this guy, okay, Chuck Swindoll, he's got to be like late 80s or early 90s by now. He's still kicking. He's still preaching, like faithfully every week. I drove up to his church on Sunday. He preaches, and I, I'm like, I'm about to burst to tears. After service, I go up to him. I'm about to cry, and I'm trying to tell him, you have no idea what I've been through. And he just stops, and he's like, just smiles and says, I know, I know. Grace is there for you, Jen. Oh, I just wanted to hug him and cry in front of him. I barely took it back. But no one wants to be constantly taken to a judgment court. Have you taken someone like that because you think you're so much better? Or have you been receiving that? These Pharisees are the ones who constantly did the blocking Jesus' mission because of their own righteousness, because of their, in their own eyes, they are the most set-apart people, not happy to Jesus hanging out with a tax collector, not happy to Jesus healing a man, doing all the gospel ministry, because to them, they are their own right. Now, let me go back from this excursion it must have reached the boiling point, this Pharisees, what Jesus was doing. Because look at what happened in the last verse that we read today. 3.6, it says, Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. You're thinking, oh, what's the big deal about it? Pharisees ran out to plot with the Herodians. Did you hear what Pharisees are all about? They are the ultra-fundamentalists adding a bunch of rules in their vocabulary, making them feel better. Do you know who Herodians are? They are the, so Herodians are the ones who follow the King Herod Antipas, who is the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the one that said they kill all the baby when Jesus was born. Absolutely, historian tells that Herod the Great was the depressed psycho. I mean, that's what historian tells us. He was a lunatic in a sense. But his son, Herod the Antipas, was no different. He was such an immoral and sensual king, he steals his wife from his half-brother. And Herodians are the one who he named his wife as Herodias. What a narcissist to name his wife like that. And all, he only installed all the, this political party, all his cabinet, just all who would praise him. Oh, King Herod, you are the greatest. And if you are the one that's following this most ill-religious, most sensual, immoral king, you are pretty bad as well. So for the fundamentalist who's like, I am far more holier than thou, to collaborate with the most sensual, irreligious, immoral people, you've never heard that before. The true fundamentalist, I say, I am so much, but they don't go out to most relativist, but they are collaborating because it offends Jesus that much. The Pharisees are the one who's offended by the good news of Jesus. What? The gospel is available for sinners? Those, those tax collectors? Those sinners? 
those prostitutes, those people and that, they're offended. Gospel should be available to me. I'm much better. I've done this. But Herodians are the ones who are offended by the bad news of the gospel. Oh, I need to repent. Oh, I cannot live however I want. Oh, there is a moral objective right and wrong. Gospel offends both religion and ill religion. Do you see that here? It offends both Herodians and Pharisees. I'm going to kill this Jesus guy. He's just something that I've never heard of. The true gospel of Jesus Christ is a non-sequitur to judgmental moral conformist as well as self-discovery relativist who despise objective right and wrong. What Jesus is offering to us today, his mission, is so radical that both right and left, religious and irreligious, are collaborating, kill Jesus. Because the message of the gospel was that scandalous. Now, do you see that clear mission of Jesus was to spread good news for all people, but there's clear opportunity of Pharisees now collaborating even with the Herodians, the most irreligious people you can imagine, to kill Jesus. If you realize any of your pharisaical tendency today, if you're a recovery addict like me from your pharisaical tendency, how do you realign yourself to really Jesus' message of the good news that is neither religion nor irreligion? How do you recover from and realign yourself to Jesus' mission? You see how Jesus goes by. When you look at verse 5, here he says, he looked around at them in anger, deeply distressed. The anger word used there is such a massive magnitude of word anger. It's not just casual anger. It's a hellish anger. It, the same word is used in Romans 2.5 that depicts the wrath of God to those who are condemned. So Jesus is very upset. Why is Jesus so upset? In this account, Jesus is giving true Sabbath, true rest to those all who come to know the message of good news. But this religious sector, Pharisees, are constantly blocking Jesus. How do you dare to take the fruit and eat on Sabbath, on this day of rest? How dare you to heal a man on this say, a day of Sabbath? They are imposing religious Sabbath, all the ceremonial Sabbath, without truly realizing the deep gospel Sabbath that Jesus come to give to all of us. How did Jesus give us this deep gospel sabbatical rest to our hearts that is so prone to set ourselves, I am so much better, I am nobody. Here Jesus gives us a hint, a couple different hints that Jesus gives in verse 20. What does he say when he gives the, all the kind of wines and all that wine bag? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. And on that day, they will fast. The day will come. When Jesus truly comes to fulfill his mission, he will go to the cross and the bridegroom will be taken away from them to fulfill his mission, to give us true gospel sabbatical rest that our heart desire. We are, our hearts are so constantly busy to prove ourselves, I am worthy. Look at me how much good work I am doing. I am so much better. But what Jesus came us to do is, it's not a about how much you work. It's about my work and what I have done for you. So he will go to the cross. But where does our rest come from? Did you see what happened in verse 11 and 12, the chapter 2 that we read? After Jesus heals this paralyzed man, what happens? I tell you, get up. Take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. 
This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like that. Where when he says he got up, that word Mark reserves it very carefully because he later uses it once again, Mark chapter 16, when Jesus gets up from his death. Jesus gets up and walks out of the tomb, and people say, wow, we have never seen anything like that. Children, the bridegroom will be taken away for momentarily for the sins of the world. He will go to the cross for our sin, but our God and Savior King will one day get up and walk again. And resurrected King will give us truly rest that your hearts desire. Why are you so busy to taking yourself to judgment court constantly? Oh, was I good enough today? I'm not good enough because I've done this, done that, because I didn't do that, didn't do that. Your hearts are so busy constantly comparing yourself to others. You are nobody because I'm so much better, or I am nobody because I don't do what others do. How do you experience this deep rest that Jesus gives? Look to what Jesus Christ has done on the cross for us. His mission on earth was to go to cross to take care of our sin problem. Because we know that Jesus Christ and bled and died for our sin, now we can rest. We don't have to judge others. We are not their judge. We don't even have to judge ourselves because Christ judged us. Christ died for us on the cross. He took all our sins on himself so that we don't have to bear the burden, so that we don't have to become a Pharisee, constantly inserting our own righteousness. But you and I are so busy each day trying to measure up. Jesus came down, went to the lowest place on earth on the cross to die for our sin so that you and I can experience true gospel sabbatical rest that our hearts desperately desire. Where are you today? Uh, Do you understand Jesus' mission, Shelton? Or is your heart always so restless because you feel like you're never good enough? And as a result, you constantly judge others, constantly hinder the mission of Jesus because of all the religiosity, all the legalism you add in your life. To the degree that you marinate yourself to the scandalous beauty of the cross, to the degree that you understand and believe to the core of your heart that Jesus got up and resurrected, your heart would begin to tell itself, it's going to be okay. You can rest because of what Jesus Christ has done. I pray that Lord will usher your heart to this gospel truth each day. Let's pray together. Oh God, your mission is so clear. You came for our sin. Oh oh, Lord, we confess often we use you just to fulfill whatever we want. And, oh God, we judge others based on our own righteousness. Help us not to exert ourselves, thinking we are so much better. Uh, We see these Pharisees, the easiest thing to say is, oh, they are the wrong. We are not like that. But, oh God, help us to be brutally honest with ourselves and examine ourselves and yet also realize that there is grace for all of us who are recovering from our own religiosity, all this Christian snobbery. So, Lord, as you realign ourselves to the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, cause us, mobilize us to join your mission each day of our lives, for we know there is truth, there is liberation, there is the rest that our hearts desperately long for. Oh, God, we look to you today. We believe, yet help our unbelief. We are in desperate need of you each day. In your precious name we pray.
Amen.